Tonight's reading will be from the epistle from Paul to the church in Rome. I'll be reading out of the 8th chapter, the 28th verse, uh, God's holy word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. The title to tonight's sermon, you may be seated, is An Awesome Assurance. First, I'd like to thank uh, Pastor Ruth. That was an excellent sermon this morning. I came thinking it was going to be, you know, I could kind of check out. I've sent my kids, I've graduated them from high school, sent them to college. And, uh, but really, I've really, it was a sermon for them. They're seniors, they're going to be seniors at Mississippi State and Southern Mississippi. But it was also a message for parents, for grandparents. We need to keep our horse blinders on, keep our eyes focused on Christ. Continue to pray for our, our children, our grandchildren. You know, the temptations of this world aren't limited to the university, but they, they are for all of us. And when, we, when our eyes stray away from Christ, we can enter into uh, temptation. Again, the title for tonight's sermon is An Awesome Assurance. When Pastor asked me if I would preach as he was going to be out of town, I said, sure. And I knew we'd been studying the Westminster Confession of Faith. Last week we finished up the second chapter, so I knew it was going to be the sovereignty of God. As a longtime Presbyterian, I thought to myself, what's a more applicable passage than Romans 8.28? For years, decades, I dare say, this has been my favorite verse. Reason being is that it was a, it's a verse steeped in theology. As Pastor said in our prayer, as Presbyterians, we love doctrine, we love theology, and that's, that's all good. But as I studied this week and read commentaries and uh, read different things and really delved into it, I had kind of a difficult week. Our family had a difficult week. We had things pop up, and it started to occur to me that this text is an awesome, awesome assurance for Christians in this life as we sojourn through this fallen world. And I just think it's a, it's a great passage. I'm going to read it one more time. I, Y'all could probably recite this verse. Being good Presbyterians, this is one that we probably all have underlined in our, in, our, in our Bibles. But I just think it's such a great verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What an awesome promise Paul is getting, giving to us here to the church at Rome under inspiration. Stephen Lawson says this about this verse. It's a pillow on which we can rest our head. Is there a greater promise in all of Scripture? Sure, we can look forward to glorification, heaven, but is there a greater promise in the Bible regarding our Christian walk here in this fallen world? Calvin, John Calvin, writes this in his commentary. The troubles of this world are not a hindrance to our salvation, but rather they are a help. We will all need a pillow at times to fall back on. Tragedies, pitfalls, things that we don't expect will come up in our lives. As I mentioned earlier, it's been a difficult week for me and for my family. On Tuesday, my son texted. We have a family, uh, I don't know if it was a Snapchat or if it was a text. Anyway, we have a family group. And my son texted and said that his, one of his college roommates, not roommates, dear friends at Mississippi State, was involved in a, a serious farming accident right outside of Sykeston, Missouri. 22-year-old man, uh, evidently he and his father were working on some farm equipment, 
and it was a serious accident that the father attempted CPR, mouth-to-mouth um, -mouth resuscitation, the ambulance came, and uh, Cole and I, we all prayed, we called pastor, he prayed, and uh, we didn't hear anything for a couple hours, Sims texts in a couple hours, he didn't make it. Life, you don't know when tragedy is going to strike us. Clayson Anderson was, was uh, just called home and it wasn't expected. Can you imagine that life without the assurance that's in our text? Taking it a little wider scope, think of the culture that we live in. If I start to spend too much time reading and watching the news, if I focus on what's going on in our, in our culture, in our country, you can become cynical. You can look at all the standards of the history of our country just unraveling in front of us. Things that we once held sacred are mocked today. I saw that uh, on the White House, they had the two flags on the, on the White House, and in the middle they had the pride flag. And the pride flag was in the position of prominence. If we went through life not having this awesome assurance that Paul is giving us here in the scriptures, can you imagine the inner turmoil, the stress that you would have in your life. Uh, Elder Rusty last week in Sunday school told us that approximately 47% of people in this nation today do not or do belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. 53% no church or synagogue or mosque affiliation at all. Obviously, historically speaking, you know, in the founding, I'm sure it was way up there in the 90% maybe, you know, right up there, you know, and it's steadily gone down in the last 100 years. 100 years ago, it was 78%, today, 47%. And you say, well, you know, we're close to half the people in this country have this awesome assurance, but if you think about that number a little bit more and kind of peel back the onion peel and think about it, that number's much lower. First of all, the survey indicated that didn't have a, a synagogue membership or a mosque Membership, So I think you can knock 5% off that don't have this assurance that Christ has given the church. I'm in a, a Baptist, I'm friends with a bunch of Baptist ministers, and uh, we have a, like a, a, a group that we, we debate, we have public debate, we challenge each other. It's a lot of fun. And one thing they lament is that as they prepare to go to New Orleans for their convention, they lament that their church... The SBC doesn't have a lot of church discipline. Their church roles are filled with people that their shadow never darkens the, the door of the church, save Easter, Mother's Day, and Christmas. So I dare say you could probably knock another 10% off. That gets you down to about 32%. Then you consider the mainline denominations and what they've done to the sovereignty of God and the, the reformed historic views of scripture and salvation and soteriology. I dare say that folks that really have the knowledge that's presented to us in this verse is in the single digits. And can you imagine losing a son, a 22-year-old son, you're at work, you're working on some farm equipment, and a tragic accident comes, and he's, he's taken home. Can you imagine not knowing that God is on his throne and working all things for our good and his glory? To be sure... The man that has this knowledge that Paul's speaking of is a man to be envied above all others. I've got three points in my sermon outline. My first one that I want us to see is an assuring knowledge. 
And I'm kind of going to work backwards here on my points. I'm first going to say what the text does not say. If we look at the beginning of this verse 28, we see, and we know. Paul is saying, and we know. What does this not what does this not say? It does not say, well, and I think. It doesn't say, well, I have a desire. It, God might be at work. It's not a maybe. It's a fact. It's emphatic, and we know. And I know. And what else does this verse not say? It does not say, we know the why. You know, why did you call my son home? Why did this happen in my marriage? Why did this financial disaster happen? overtake me. It doesn't give that answer. It just says, and we know. This decree that Paul gives us, this emphatic fact of knowledge, is for all believers in the church. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for leaders of the church. It's for all Christians in the covenant community. Young, old, male, female, black, white. It is for all of us. It's a tool that we can all put in our toolbox to use. It's a great assurance for our life. You know, when you consider life and its ups and downs and pitfalls, it is reassuring that we know that we have a sovereign Lord on his throne, Jesus Christ at his right side, constantly interceding for us. We know God's love for us is in all things. Can we think of a greater promise in all of scripture for this life? So we have an assuring knowledge. Secondly, we have an almighty action. If we look in our text again, we see this. All things work together. I'll begin at the beginning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. All things work together. What does this not say? This does not say that all things are good. You know, you've got, consider, murder, abortion, theft, disease, hunger, tragedy, Stealing, theft, injustice. Over the last four or five years, we've seen so much injustice in our land. We've seen the loss legal system just run amok. And we've seen just so much evil in our country when we consider what goes on in our streets and what's accepted as righteous and unrighteous. All things are not good. That is one thing this verse is not saying. Secondly, it is not saying it is, God is not the author of evil. As we are in chapter 3 of our Westminster Confession of Faith, I'd like to read section 1. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own, free, own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. What are the divine saying here? They're saying God is on his throne. He is complete sovereign. Man is over here. He's a free agent. Somehow, God is completely sovereign. Man has free agency, and these things are harmonized together. How do you explain that? It's a divine mystery. Some things our finite minds just cannot comprehend. We may apprehend it slightly, but it is a biblical truth. The scripture does teach both. It teaches God's divine authority, sovereignty, and it teaches man's free agency. Though he's bound by sin, we get up, we make decisions. God is not the cause of all things. Consider Joseph. You mentioned him this morning. 
he's, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. All sorts of evil overtakes him. And what happens? He becomes, Potiphar's wife tries to tempt him. He overcomes, and he becomes the second highest leading man in Egypt. What do we read in Genesis 50, 20? What, he meets his brothers, and he says, what you all meant for evil, God meant for good. He can use the evil. His brother is selling him into slavery, all the temptations, the prison time, and he uses it for good. What it does say, Matthew Henry, I read my Matthew Henry commentary this week. God is always working the harmony of good and evil to reach his ends. Our ultimate good is what God is always establishing. If, if you look at work in the text here, it's in the active and present form. It's saying that God is constantly and always working to intercede for us. He's always at work. He's got that good Protestant work ethic. And uh, he never slumbers. He never relaxes. All his deeds are focused on our good and his glory. He is always at work. What a blessed assurance knowing that God is always on the clock. You know, when tragedy or hardships overtake us, knowing that God is there is just an awesome, awesome assurance. So that begs the question, what are all things? What are all things? There's three types of things as I see it. You've got good things. You've got kind of amoral things, things that happen in the creation. You've, and you've got evil deeds, evil things. Um, good things are kind of obvious. Um, no one really argues that God uses these good things to achieve his ends. Prayer, we consider, you know, is anyone going to argue that God uses prayer to achieve his ends? No, we all would agree, all the church denominations would agree that that is used by God. Worship, indeed. Our worship, it advances his kingdom. We grow in the faith. We grow in maturity. We come more like Christ. The gospel proclamation. Men and women go out into the streets. They talk to their neighbors. They share the gospel, and the kingdom advances. It grows. Uh, the sacraments. The sacraments are a visual display of, the, of, of salvation, of, of um, the good news. They are a means of grace where God grows his covenant community. He, he strengthens us. Charity. I could go on and on and make a list of all the good deeds that God uses to advance his kingdom. Most people in the church would not disagree. They would say yes and amen. But then there's amoral, amoral moral actions. You think of weather. You think of uh, things in creation that God uh, performs. I was on the radio, this is, long, this is after Katrina, I, I like to debate, and uh, I was debating a guy, a Baptist gentleman out of New Orleans, and he was, point was that, you know, there's no, God has no control over Katrina. Katrina was an evil, that he, it was outside of his bounds, and I said, no, God isn't, he, he controls the storms, and this is a amoral thing that happens in his creation, but it can be used to bring about his ultimate glory and our good. A delay. Say you're going to the airport, you get in traffic. On the way up here tonight, a tree fell across the street. We left early, and the state trooper had it blocked off, and we had to uh, take a shortcut. Hope bailed us out there, and we made it. And Arden's fancy driving, we made it on time. We actually made it early. But that's an example of an amoral occurrence that God can use to achieve an end of our good. Now, did he use that? I'm not sure, but here we are. 
so delay, and you got weather, and then there's common grace. I think of Matthew 5, uh, verse 45, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, an example of God's common grace that he uses to advance his kingdom. We were thankful for the rain yesterday. Our, you know, our crops, our, our hay fields, our pasture lands have been very dry. When God sends this, he works it out in some way that it's for the advancement of his kingdom and our good. And he does this on the good and the unjust. Uh, the last one is the really difficult one, and that is bad things. We got the good, the bad, and the ugly, and here we are. Consider the evil that we see in the world. Can God use evil? Can he use that to the advancement of his kingdom for our good? We think of persecution, martyrdom, death, injury, illness. Let's look at the end of our chapter in verses 35 through 39. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, tribula shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just in that part of the verse, he is listing so many things. Shall tribulation or distress? These are things that occur in our lives. They're not that bad. Persecution. That's something that we really don't, we don't get persecuted like Christians have throughout the history of the, of the church or in other parts of the country. Famine. We don't suffer from famine, but it is a reality for many people around the, around the globe that are Christians. God can use these. Danger or sword, that's not come to us yet, but you don't know. I continue in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now what's being described here? Obviously it's martyrdom. And we think of all the heroes and the patriarchs of the faith throughout the, throughout the centuries that have gone to the mat for Jesus Christ. We think of the men and the women burned at the stake during the Reformation. Think of us. We think of all these men. Even Luther risked his life, ultimately lived, but martyrdom is in view here. And that's what, Christ, this is an example of an evil. These men are trying to do evil against the kingdom, but God can use it for good. All the time, these evil men are thinking, we're, you know, we're working against the kingdom. But God can take their evil desires, their evil actions, and twist them and use them for the advancement of the church. All things work together for God. All things. And he continues to list them in the rest of this chapter. For I am sure that neither death nor life, death nor life, there is nothing other. There's no intermediate. Uh, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Things present or things to come. Things in history, that's all time. He's describing all time throughout history. God is overseeing these things. Nor height, nor depth. Those are the two extremes. There's no other. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the, Paul's telling us that everything that occurs, Pastor, you mentioned it in your prayer, the little Adam to the great event, all these things are orchestrated by God, his sovereign will, and all these things work together for our good and his ultimate glory. We somehow can't explain it, but it is a biblical truth, and it is something that we should stand on. This is a foundational text for us as Christians to use in our, in our daily walk, 
in times of trouble and in times of despair. It's a, it's a reassuring knowledge. My third point, I had an A for my title, I had an A for my first point, I had an A for my second point, but I failed on my third point. I couldn't come up with another A. So my third point is the purpose-driven life. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the title of that book. As I mentioned earlier, I'm friends with a, a host of Southern Baptist ministers. And as they prepare to go to New Orleans, Rick Warren and Saddleback Church is front and center with their, their problem that they've got going on in the SBC. A lot of the same problems they have, we also have. They're a little bit ahead of us in that race to craziness. But uh, Rick Warren is front and center in that. And what was the, the theme of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. Again, I'm, gonna, I'm saying what this text, this part of the text does not say, for good. In verse 28, we read this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So what is this good? Is it Rick Warren's good? His view of a purpose driven life, of reaching self-fulfillment, of reaching a status of wealth, of prosperity, of inner happiness? Is that what is being described in the text here in the 8th chapter of Romans? Is that what Paul is describing? No, that is not what he's describing. Consider Job. Job had all these things. He'd reached the perfect purpose-driven life, and it was all taken away. It was all gone. Again, look at verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Martyrdom, go into the mat. Is that the purpose-driven life? And Rick Warren, to be sure, very wealthy man, very successful. Saddleback Church, huge. He, excellent businessman. He's, you can learn a lot going into business. Rick Warren could probably teach you. But he's missing the, the theme of this verse, this foundational verse. He's got it wrong. That is not the view of Scripture. God did, we don't become Christians to get the easy life. A young convert, an immature Christian may come, read Warren's type theology, and say, yes, I would love to become part of the church. Look at all these nice people. I could, I'll lose my addiction. I'll lose all my problems. I'll be content. But that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ in these verses does not guarantee us an easy you know, a coasting through life. This is a, a journey, and it's in a fallen world, and Christ does not promise us the purpose-driven life. There's going to be pitfalls, there's going to be hardships, there's going to be turmoil, and all these things are working for our good. But what is this good? What is the good if it's, all I'm describing is pitfalls and, and tragedy and, 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 and hardship? Well, Paul tells us in verse 29, we read this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the purpose. We're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Brother Stan, a couple weeks ago, Wednesday night, brought up the Ordo Salutis, and it's played out right here in front of us in the rest of the verses. And we see foreknowledge here, but this foreknowledge, we must know, it's not God looking down the corridor of time, seeing what man is going to do, and deciding, and looking and saying, oh, I know what he's going to do. It's not that kind of knowledge. 
It's an intimate knowledge. It's a love knowledge. It's like an intimate relationship. I knew him. Consider Mary. Mary had not known a man. What does that mean? She didn't know any men? No, that means she did not know a man. She was a virgin. Christ, when he's speaking to the men that cast out demons and perform miracles in his name, what did he say? I never knew you. Now, God is omniscient. Does he not know all our names? Indeed, he knows all our names. He knows us. He knows the goats. He knows the sheep. He knows us. He knows our names. But he doesn't know them intimately. They are not of his flock. This knowledge is not foresight. It is an intimate, omniscient love for his sheep. So, how do we, what is, how do we apply this to our lives? Can we put this text into the first person? You know, it starts in the beginning, it's plural, it's for the church. Can we say, and I know, and I know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called to his purpose. It's the greatest comfort in the Bible. If you can say, and I know, it's a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful tool to recognize the sovereignty of God It'll bring it contentment in, in eras of hardship, in days of turmoil. It's just an awesome comfort that God has given the church. And it's right here in front of us, and sometimes we miss it, especially as Presbyterians. We focus on the doctrine. We focus on the predestination. But this verse contains so much more, and it's a beautiful thing. Can you say, and I know? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this end of the Lord's day, Lord. We thank you for the, the week that was, and we thank you for this day of rest. Lord, we thank you for the ability to come and worship you together. Lord, you have invited us here to come together to worship you, and we thank you for that call, Lord. I pray that uh, uh, anything that I've said would be, would be measured with a grain of salt. Father, help the people to understand your words. Lord, you know my heart, you know my soul, and if they only heard Chris Bird speak tonight, they would be none the better. But you tell us where two or three gather, there also you are. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon all of us, help us to grow in the faith, and to love you. Until we gather again, in Christ's name, amen.